You're listening to the Unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, brought to you by alumni.fm. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are today, enjoy today's episode, and here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Welcome to Unsiloed. This is uh, Greg LeBlanc, and I'm here today with um, Hendra Ramsangani, who is the founder of Secure Octane, which is a venture capital firm based here in San Francisco, which invests in cybersecurity and other sectors. He's also the author of multiple books, most importantly, The Business of Venture Capital, subtitled The Art of Raising a Fund, Structuring Investments, Portfolio Management, and Exits. Also co-author of a book on startup boards, co-authored with Brad Feld and Matt Blumberg, and your most recent book called The Resilient Founder, Lessons in Endurance from Startup Entrepreneurs. Welcome, Mahendra. Thank you, Greg. It's always a delight. Now, this book that you wrote, in the very beginning of the book, you said something to the effect that if the book that you want to read doesn't exist, then you got to go write it. <laughs> I think you were quoting, I forget who you were quoting when you, you, you said that. But what I found interesting about your book is that your book really is, as opposed to a lot of the other books out there on venture capital, is a very comprehensive view of the industry. So it's not simply about how to identify deals and, and structured deals. It's also about setting up a fund. It's about establishing career in, in venture capital. And so before we jump into all of those topics, maybe just start by saying like, why write a book? You know, you're a practitioner, you're out there in the field, you're, you're doing your thing. I'm sure that you didn't intend to get rich off this book. And it's also not necessarily going to attract a huge amount of sort of founders to you necessarily, although I'm sure that could be a, a side benefit. Why write a book? Because it, it's an awful lot of work. So uh, why write a book? Like, that's a great question. And a lot of us in the business often uh, try to figure out whether that's a distraction, whether that's something that I'm doing to assuage my own ego, or I'm trying to help the community. And selfishly for me, the, the journey of writing a book star was uh, sort of triggered by the thought that I have a lot of these questions and there are no answers. And when the first edition of the book came out, there were no blog posts, there were no podcasts. So I had to call people and ask a lot of what I thought were dumb questions. And VCs would say, oh, you should try this. And then the other VCs I spoke would give me completely opposite feedback. So I was like, what does this mean? One person is asking me to go north and the other person is asking me to go south and I can't make head or tail off it. So... My conclusion was that a lot of people like me who have similar questions. And let me just put the questions out there, whether it's deciding mm -hmm. your career path, whether it's making investments, whether it's being a good board member, or whether it's deciding what is an exit uh, path that a company should take. And in our business, there are no straight answers. So it was a way of saying, here is chaos, try to make sense out of it. So you've been in the business for a while. And I think if we go back to, say, 1990s when you started, if we looked at the top companies in the Fortune 500, there probably wouldn't be a whole lot of them that were venture financed. If you look at Exxon and JP Morgan and the big companies back then, very few of them were venture financed. And now I think it, it's safe to say that the majority of the companies at the top of the league tables were venture funded. And so why do you think that this industry has grown in importance and, and relevance? And, and why have we gotten to the state where it's pretty hard to build a, a lasting business if you don't tap into kind of venture capital? So why is 
the Fortune 500 today, you know, when you look at those companies and look at the venture back companies, I mean, clearly there has been a, a phenomenal rise in the number of companies that have underpinnings from capital, venture capital. I think the two reasons that have triggered this wave is one is, you know, to quote Martin Reeson, software is eating the world. So when you look at the 90s and you look at today, you see the wave of technology adoption, consumption in every layer of the business and its predominance in, even if it's not being used as a primary way of delivering value, it is being used in tracking your performance, your sales, putting your quarterly numbers to the Wall Street Journal. So technology has become integral to every business. And that technology fundamentally gets driven by venture capital. You know, that's the gasoline, that's the fuel, you know, that's the reason why I named my firm Optane is the fuel that we provide to these companies so that they can grow. So adoption of technology and increase in volume of capital that has come into venture. Mm -hmm. So the first edition of the book uh, talks about the total volume of venture, uh, the dollars flowing into venture capital. You know, public markets, trillions of dollars, hedge funds were hundreds of billions of dollars. And at that time, the peak volume of venture capital flowing from assets into institutional asset managers into venture was like 40-ish billion. Mm -hmm. And today that number is multiplied by five times, you know, so in 10 years, 10 to 15 years, you know, we are seeing a tremendous flow of capital into venture, you know, early stage, later stage, and the competition for investments, the competition for value, that has increased. And then second thing that has increased is the number of years companies are staying private. Mm -hmm. The notion of going public was driven by the fact that I'm accessing a financing mechanism. Now the notion of going public is not necessarily accessing a financing mechanism. It is how much profit I can squeeze out of this company before I drop it into the public market. I mean, is there something specific about technology that requires a different type of investing at the early stage compared to other companies? I mean, is it just that there's a longer period of time before you become cash flow positive um, and you know you can't build a business on retained earnings and and so so really what you're saying is that the rise of venture capital is not due to a, a shift in um, the way in which people think about starting businesses but really it's a shift away from non-technology to technology and there's something specific about technology that requires this type of investing yeah, one of the drivers clearly is the way technology has grown in every facet. And then the capital required to start these companies, you know, we call it risk capital. And you go back to studying the history of venture capital and see that the early financiers or backers were people who were comfortable with uh, risk in these quote unquote crazy individuals uh, or asset classes or companies that people don't fully understand, you know. Mm. So you didn't have the conventional source of financing, which is, you know, the, we'd call it banking or other uh, sort of classical source of financing. This asset class was invented like, well, I don't know, 50, 60 years ago, right? It started with the first wave, you know, the pioneers of, you know, uh, say, Pinal Perkins and Sequoia, the early 70s when some of these early funds got off the ground. So 72 was the first few funds. NEA's first fund was like, I don't know, like, three or four million or something like that. You know, there's a humorous uh, anecdote that I quoted in the first edition of the book. I think it's still in the third edition about how some of the fund managers traveled to uh, the Midwest and they talked to some of these pension funds or industries, uh, you know, traditional industries say, you should invest in our fund. And in one of those conversations, the investment manager says, I don't know who you are. 
I don't know what you're going to invest in. And you're asking me for a billion dollars. And mm-hmm. the fund manager says, absolutely, yes. And guess what? He gets a billion dollars. So the asset class got invented. But certainly in the past 10 years, you, you know, a lot of these bigger investors realized that in this asset class, there's more money to be made. So hedge funds are moving into this asset class, although now I can claim they're moving out of it very fast. But the asset class started to attract a lot of uh, newer and newer investors as the returns started to rise. So we see in the 50-year evolution, it's gone, you know, 40 billion to several hundred billion now, and it is quite a fascinating uh, rise. I didn't anticipate it in my lifetime. I'll see this grow five times. I think you quoted uh, some investor who was doing due diligence back in the 1930s, and I can't remember whether it was from Ben Graham's book or where it came from. But this person essentially said that they were going to keep doing the research until they found a sure thing with high returns. And, you know, in today's world, as a venture capitalist, you have to be comfortable with losses. You have to be comfortable with, with failure. You describe the hit rate, the standard hit rate as being very low, not just for individual venture capitalists, but, but also as an LP. Venture capitalists themselves as a whole tend to wash out at, at very high, high rates. So is this a fundamental change in, in mentality? I mean, a lot of people don't understand venture capital might say, oh, we live in a much more risk averse world than we did back our grandparents and so forth. But this seems to be a world that is remarkably risk tolerant. We have mechanisms for rolling with the punches. Absolutely. This business is the classic, how you can get returns out of one company. And if the other 10 or 15 don't make it, that's okay. So it's very skewed in the way everybody thinks about these. So you have terms like moonshots, you have terms like the power law, you have terms like the, the batting average. It's not singles or doubles. You have to aim for, quote unquote, these home runs, which are big outcomes. And so the risk returns kind of profile of this asset class tends to be very skewed. And that also makes or breaks fund managers. You know, you look at fund managers who have been around for long enough. And either they've had a string of successes, and you could argue whether those were luck, whether there's prepared mind, whether there was skill. I think those arguments will go on for a very long time. But I feel like there's a blend of being prepared, taking a bet on a certain trend that is occurring, you know, studying the trend, and then looking at opportunities within that universe of trends and saying, okay, if it's crypto or if it's cloud or if it's cybersecurity, I believe that here are ways that people will start to shift their behavior. And but many times, markets don't evolve fast enough. I think that's the single biggest problem in our business is markets don't evolve or adopt technologies fast enough. Or if they adopt certain technologies, they don't adopt every technology. They'll pick one, right? Mm-hmm. So you end up saying, okay, in this scenario, I was a winner. In this scenario, I lost. And so this is a business where you're constantly being humbled and uh, you're constantly being uh, reminded that you cannot logically plan the outcomes. You can apply logic, but there's always a 5-10% of a hidden hand that comes out in our business. Yeah, so you mentioned financial engineering, for instance. And, and you know, I teach in a finance department, and it always amazes me that kind of venture capital and, say, financial engineering are in the same department because something like financial engineering is really, let's find the, the almost riskless arbitrage opportunities that are going to be based on highly, highly kind of quantitative analysis. But venture capital is about, let's find something that 
I mean, it's not even more likely to succeed than, than not. And the evaluations that take place are, are anything but rigorous and quantitative. There's very little stochastic calculus involved in the evaluation of, of projects of, of founders. And so there's this, this evaluation process happening at multiple levels. There's the, the venture capitalist evaluating founders. There is the GPs being evaluated by the LPs. And then there are the firms themselves evaluating potential new partners and, and engaging in this recruiting process, which is also very, very complicated. So maybe we can start with the GPLP relationship, which your book spends a lot of time on, which I found you know, very beneficial. You know, I work with a lot of pension funds, public pension funds, and they always have an allocation to venture capital. They always have a set for private equity of all kinds, but venture capital in particular. And they always want to know, like, how do I know which of these managers I should entrust my money to? Who's going to be good? Who's not going to be good? And, and they ultimately fall back on a bunch of simple rules of, of thumb. How do LPs, limited partners, evaluate GPs, general partners? And then how should they? Are there any biases or habits or traps that, that the LPs fall into, which maybe they should, they should rethink? And does it depend on the size of, of the LP and the sophistication of the LP? So how should institutional investors, fund managers, pension fund managers think about venture capital? I think there's the easy answer, mm -hmm. which is what the majority of them tend to do. And then there is the bolder approach that, gosh, I wish, I wish, I pray, I beg that they should take. Okay. So what's the easy answer? The easy answer starts with this notion of career risk. I'm not going to make any decision that's going to hurt my track record as an investor and worse will get me fired. Okay. So if I work for CalPERS, you know, which is what $440 billion of assets today. And if this 27 year old new first time fund manager walks in, I'm going to be like, how soon can I get out of this meeting? Because first of all, I should have never taken this meeting. Obviously I got some political pressure from somebody high up to take this meeting and now I'm in this room. And I'm looking at the watch saying, how quickly can I end this call, get out of the speed? Because I'm never going to do this. I'm not going to put my career at risk. And so that hurts a lot of newcomers in our business. I mean, I could use the analogy of we would never be able to send a man on the moon if we were looking for a track record. Right? But institutional investors are trying to reduce their risk by saying, show me your performance. Okay, guess what? So in the old days, it's like you can't get fired for hiring IBM. You can't get fired for exactly. hiring a Harvard MBA. Exactly. And I think that this is sort of the classic large institutional mindset that occurs, right? If you look at family offices, if you look at solo individuals who have made money and they want to back other individuals, these decisions happen very fast. And the fundamental reason there is that yeah, I can deal, I can live with my risk. Okay. I, and, and these individuals, it's institutional. They're worried that this is going to backfire. Okay, that's one. Mm -hmm. The second yeah. part is the percentage of the assets that are set aside for venture capital are so small that even if I give them a hundred X return, which by the way, I don't think any GP has delivered hundred X LP back, you know, but even if I give them, you know, 10 times, which is considered to be well above average in the industry, you know, two to three times is considered to be a, a very healthy upper uh, sort of uh, threshold. But 10 times, if I return 10 times money back to my, LP in, in CalPERS, you know, it, it's not going to move the needle for a $400 billion firm. So A, 
the downside risk is significant. Like I could get fired or I'd have a black mark on my resume and mm-hmm. there is no upside risk. Like, gosh, you could do amazing and nobody's going to even like, let alone give me a promotion or a raise. They won't even pat me on the back. I won't even get a bouquet of flowers or a, or a small <laughs> card, you know? So no, I'm not doing this. Right? So that happens with large institutions. Now, that doesn't mean that they don't invest in the asset class. They have their portfolios and balances in the portfolio. So they'll go after these bigger funds. So, you know, today, Andreessen Horowitz is a great example of a stable, large, almost like approaching the kind of standard or practices like a BlackRock or, you know, not in assets under management, but in terms of behavior and styles. Okay. So they'll, they'll sort of default towards that. But that leaves the the vast bottom of the pyramid open. And so you have all of these waves that occur where, oh, the minorities are not getting much attention. Oh, the underserved, underrepresented GPs. If you don't invest in those GPs, they're not going to invest in, you know, underrepresented founders and so on. So these shifts keep occurring in our in our landscape. Mm-hmm. But my simple prayer to these institutions is that find an entrepreneur-like person, give them enough rain and some capital to say, you can be the crazy ones. Go back after the crazy manager. Because today, I'll tell you what is happening at the ground level is that there are founders who are starting companies that are doing things that will be considered crazy today. But eventually, we may not see them as that crazy. So, for example, mm-hmm. 10 years ago, when Elon Musk started, you know, SpaceX, everybody's like, what? Mars? No. Okay. Or when Tesla went through some of the same challenges. And now, building up on top of that wave has been a bunch of founders who have headquartered around Miami to say, we have to do manufacturing of certain components in space. Okay. A very crazy concept. I cannot fathom. I, I lived for 10 years in Detroit and just seeing how manufacturing and how complex it was on the ground. And here's some entrepreneur that walks in and says, we're going to manufacture these things in space. I mean, how soon can I get out of this meeting? Because I, yeah. I just don't see that happening, right? But there are some managers, there are some VCs who have backed these founders with a lot of money. And Coastal Ventures is one of those pioneers that just bets on these uh, crazy founders. And so I remember seeing one founder I met here in the Rosewood Hotel here in the Bay Area. And it was a networking event. This was pre-pandemic. And this founder walks up to me and says, so what do you invest in? And I tell him, you know, cybersecurity. And I could see he's almost like crestfallen, like disappointed. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, how boring. I feel sorry for you. You invest in cybersecurity? <laughs> That's all? So I had to quickly sort of recover from this, this reaction. So I said, tell me, what are you building? Because every company is affected by cybersecurity. And he says, not mine. Mine will not be affected by hackers because I'm trying to mine for precious metals in asteroids. Okay. Yeah. So now it took me like two minutes to even fathom what this guy was saying. There's an asteroid flying through space at, I don't know, several thousand miles an hour. Okay. This startup is going to build something that's going to latch onto that asteroid mm-hmm. and dig into that asteroid and then decide whether it's platinum or rhodium or whatever, extract that from that asteroid and bring it back on Earth. And I was like, how soon can I get out of this conversation? Because yeah, yeah. I remember you, you you recounted that story in The Resilient Founder. And of course, you're talking about from the perspective of what are the characteristics of this individual that might lead this person to succeed. And I have a f- student from here at Berkeley who he began at YC with this crazy Bitcoin payments concept, which evolved into a very serious 
unicorn that does you know ACH transfers and so forth. And so you know he was talking about his funding journey, and he talked about his first investor. And I said, well, did that first investor actually think this Bitcoin concept was a good one? Because I mean, it's 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 not a good one. And he was like, you know what? He told me later that he knew it was crazy. But he, he was betting on me. He knew that I would realize sooner rather than later that it was crazy and that I would figure out some other way to get the job done. No, absolutely. So that betting on a human being is sort of the second order or second layer that mm-hmm. we as professionals are now adopting. There are some some VCs who knew this from day one. I'd say mm-hmm. put Peter Thiel in that category. I mean, he was the first one to bet on Mark Zuckerberg, put $500,000 into Facebook at an incredibly low valuation. But if you look at the classical rules of how we should do our diligence, well, never invest in a first-time founder. Okay. Never invest in a company that is not forced to market. Facebook was, I think, like 15th or 20th social network, right? So you have all of these things that play against the rules, but then you have the outliers. Now, Peter Thiel was betting with some of his own money, and so he could get away with that. My plea to the LPs is that yeah, you are handling assets for a different universe. So we understand your responsibilities. But if you want to create a new generation of managers, you know, we are up against speed and we are up against all the unknowns that we just discussed, right? I don't know if this business is going to work, but I know this person will succeed. So the same philosophy that LP say, well, I want to bet for three funds. Okay. I had this very comedic conversation with an LP. He said, I want to, bunch, I want to invest in you at least for three fund cycles. But I cannot do that because you're too old. <laughs> so mm-hmm. I'm like, yeah, I'll be dead by the time I do my third fund. So thank you for letting me know your bias. <laughs> but you know, you have right. all of these rules that institutions have around how to protect themselves versus how to take some some more risks than they typically do. But isn't it kind of interesting that here we have a business that exists in order to fund startups, in order to make it easier for you to start a business from scratch and cast a wide net. And they're all competing vigorously to provide funds to aspiring entrepreneurs. But on the flip side, it's actually you know really, really hard to be an entrepreneurial venture capitalist where legacy matters and, and reputation matters and the barriers to entry are quite high. So why don't we see more VC squared, folks who are essentially in the business of, of funding new GPs? And I know you, you did some work with fund of funds back in the day, and you could imagine fund of funds might play that role. But I think fund of funds are also trying to crowbar their way into the top to your firms. So is that a potential market failure or is that the nature of the industry that if, if you're an aspiring VC, your path to entry is just to join an existing GP rather than start your own? I think that VC squared or how can first-time fund managers get off the ground faster? How can they get off the ground quicker? Now, in this day age, age, you have certain systems that are coming together. So for example, there are some fund of funds that are not averse to talking to first-time funds. Earlier, I guess the question is, it shouldn't be up to CalPERS to identify the next wave of venture capitalists. That's not their strong suit. Like, they're not good at identifying asteroid mining companies. Like, why would they be good at identifying people who are investing in asteroid mining companies? You know what I mean? Like, like they're they're not necessarily the ones that we can rely on to jumpstart new venture firms. No, absolutely. And I think that when you look at jumpstarting new venture firms, what are some tactical things that should happen and how should the culture also evolve? I think at the, at the very tactical level, if you look at 
how new firms get started. It's a very network-driven activity. You know, so people who know you and trust you say, I'm going to take a leap of faith. I believe in Greg and he's starting a fund. When you look at some of these funds that started early on, they were very small and they had to prove themselves very quickly. But that first trigger that occurs, it's small. It's within a network of people you know. It's the, it's the only believers. Then not many of them, not many of the fund managers are able to cross the chasm. So you have to generate returns. And you have to then earn the the institutional advantage of becoming bigger because the institutional minimums are like, if you're below $100 million, don't talk to me because I don't want to write a check that is smaller than $5 billion. So you have size advantage that needs to follow your performance and only then you break out. Otherwise, there are a lot of funds that will stay small. There's nothing wrong in that, but you always are fighting to raise capital. I'll give you a little funny anecdote. I have over 100 investors. These are small, some of them family offices, some are individuals. The market's just turned. Starting January, it's been sort of the spiraling uh, downfall if the, of the margins. So I just issued a capital call in July. Okay, This is my third capital call. So in every capital call, I'm calling for 25% of the proceeds. And about 30 to 40% of my LPs have not responded to the capital call. We're like in the middle of, <laughs> middle of August, okay? I've sent them multiple reminders. I've texted them. I've called them. I need the money so that I can keep the business running. Can I take their spot? <laughs> <laughs> so, so they have vanished literally. So, you know, these are the challenges that a small fund manager has uh, to deal with. I know if Harper's yeah. was one of my LPs, this would be the last thing I would be worried about, like uh, yeah. cash flow problem. <laughs> so these are challenges that small GPs have to fight every day. And you have to break through on the other side so that you can start to then get institutional LPs. Otherwise, you'll be like fighting the battle at a grassroots level every day. <laughs> well, and when it comes to evaluation and performance, it seems like the metrics are, are somewhat crude, where you just sometimes just look at multiples, maybe look at IRR, maybe look at some other, but people don't really control for uh, vintage and they don't control for sector. I mean, maybe the fund did well just because they decided to choose the right sector, right? Like, oh, enterprise SaaS, that's a great, but do you, you actually pick the worst ones in sector, you know, like, should we be thinking about developing more sophisticated ways of evaluating these funds or are those potentially going to be a trap where ultimately there'll be benchmark shopping and all the other stuff that happens in other aspects of finance? Yes. Fund performance is a fascinating topic and how that, how should that be measured? What are attributions? What are identifiers of skill? I think if you talk to all the institutional LPs, the collective groan is like consistency. Mm -hmm. Show me consistency because today this fund is leading the pack and then it becomes somewhat like a mutual fund game. And then two, two, five years later, there is, that fund is nowhere to be seen. Somebody else is leading the pack. So show me consistency of performance is sort of like a, a, a collective plea that our institutional LPs have. And what fund managers do, you know, people like me are giving them the two metrics that they want to look at even before they start the conversation. Okay. So your IRR, you know, which is a time-based sort of uh, metric of your performance. And then the second is your cash on cash, you know, whether you're TVPI or multiple of invested capital. So those two tend to become sort of have now become industry standards, if I can use that term, although I don't even know if we are an industry as such. The National Venture Capital Association has done a tremendous job in trying to drive some of these things into well, performance metrics. Really what happens beneath the layer is there is so much gamesmanship that goes, you know, it's mm -hmm. like 50 ways I can play this game and 
the, the 49 ways the LP will never find out, right? So the question then becomes that how do I pick the manager that A, prepared a hypothesis, prepared mine, and then within that hypothesis, went after some companies. And yeah, it'll still be wrong, but at least on a majority basis, got a meaningful outcome based on a studied attempt. And I think that's the best metric of scale. Otherwise, you end up with like, all right, what are we investing in today? Well, crypto. I can actually go and spray money into everything that has got a Web 3.0 avatar on Moniker, and it could actually become a very good outcome because one of these companies is bound to succeed. I'm, you know, going to catch something on the rising tide. But a studied hypothesis and performance that ties to the hypothesis, that is somewhat rare in our business. But doesn't that presume that the skill is persistent, that your past performance predicts future performance? I mean, if we're evaluating companies, for instance, you know, I wouldn't recommend that we spend too much time looking at prior performance. You know, we'd want to know, like, how well are they situated to take advantage of new opportunities, right? Like when you're evaluating the competitive advantage of a firm, you're trying to figure out how does their current resources and capabilities match with the current opportunities. If I'm like super, super well situated to identify who the winners and losers are going to be, yeah. say, in the crypto space, why would I think that that skill would be predicted by my success in identifying the winners and losers in, say, the cybersecurity space 10 years ago, right? Like, why, why would we think that there's any correlation there? There is no correlation there, Greg. I think you make a fantastic point here. And this is the kind of thinking that needs to start permeating into the institutions because you're challenging the very fundamental concept, which is rear view mirror. You cannot drive looking in the rear view mirror. And if you do so, you're going to end up in a ditch, right? But if you were to apply the systems approach or a framework of thinking here, that to your point, okay, if there is a wave that is starting to grow and let's take a geography, you know, maybe India is a good, good example in current economic times, okay, or Europe, you pick a geography and say, okay, there is something on the geography. I'm a fund manager sitting in San Francisco. I'm going to fly to Bombay. I'm going to talk to a bunch of managers. I'm going to see what each one's hypothesis is, what they claim to be their unique advantage is that sustained, at least can sustain for a fund cycle, and then I can make some bets. But if I don't use the prior financial metrics of performance, then I still expose myself to a little bit of risk because putting money in the hands of other entrepreneurs, some entrepreneurs who have become fund managers, they do that really well because they empathize with the entrepreneurial spirit. They know the problems that this portfolio CEO might be facing. So they tend to be leaning in towards supporting entrepreneurs. But to be a fund manager, and I've learned this the hard way, by the way, Greg, to think in, put yourself in the shoes of your shareholders to be a good asset allocator, not to get swayed by a company that is suddenly growing very fast and putting betting the farm on it. You have to follow certain disciplinary kind of processes and steps to make mm -hmm. sure that you don't end up in a very difficult corner. So that comes after having burned through. So I, I mm -hmm. believe that I started to think like a VC only after like 40, 50 investments. Till that time, yeah. I was just like anybody else. I was trying to please the people. I was trying to earn my way into these networks. You know? Yeah, but like if I invest in an early stage company and it stumbles out of the gate, and but sooner or later finds its way, I'm going to be sitting there on the other end as an equity holder in that company. But if I invest as an LP in your first fund and it flops, I don't have any, I don't have any, I don't have any piece of your second fund. So w wouldn't it be better for me just to wait and let you that flip that first that. pancake at somebody else's expense and then, 
Well, I think you're touching on a very fundamental advantage the LPs have. LPs are not penalized if they miss out on Andreessen Horowitz's first fund. Mm-hmm. LPs are not penalized if they miss out on this fund that suddenly breaks out and gives a fantastic return. Because they always have a second chance. Okay. Now, mm-hmm. some of the GPs that I talk to, you know, after four drinks or after a long hike, they'll confess that, oh, that LP, I'll make sure they never invest in my fund, no matter what happens. Okay. So this is like a little childish or mm. a kind of revenge mechanism. Like you didn't support yeah. me back then. Why should I let you hit now? And I think that dynamic is not necessarily adult or healthy in my opinion. But you're right. LPs don't get penalized for missing out on funds. And this is where I've quoted in, in the book, I've quoted a small paragraph from the medical community. The medical community has an f- amazing practice. Of course, they're dealing with life and death situations and not portfolios. So it's a very different mindset. But every time there is a, a fatality that occurs, the doctors get together. They, in a very yeah. open conversation, share this with others and they try to say, okay, next time around, maybe we could try this or you could have tried this. So it's a very healthy conversation, right? I think both GPs and LPs need to adopt that in their practice to say, how can we reflect on this situation and become better? Do you think they treat false positives and false negatives differently? When you make an investment that turns out to be a big flop, I mean, you can do a postmortem. But if you if you say no to an investment that turns out to be a big success, do you apply an equal amount of uh, reflection on that in the form of a postmortem? Are we symmetric in analyzing our errors? This is, this is a question that applies both to the GPs on their portfolio companies and also on the LPs, you know, in evaluating GPs. I think the short answer, Greg, is hell no. We constantly accentuate ourselves into glorious positions, no matter what, right? That's at the heart of it as human behavior. That's how we tend to operate. But there's a very interesting analog in the cybersecurity world that I've tried to use in some of these scenarios. It's not worked. But it's a thought experiment, okay? So in the cybersecurity world, you create these, what is called the red team and the blue team, okay? So two opponents, and mm-hmm. you, then you drop your goods and let's see how this, how you can break the system or protect the system, right? In a similar vein, if I made an investment decision, okay, that flops big time, and now I'm almost guilty walking into the room of four other partners knowing that they're going to slobber me and they're going to just like bring their machetes and destroy me. So I'm always feeling guilty, my tail between my legs. I'm trying to avoid this whole conversation, pretend like it doesn't exist. But it's up to the other partners to say, we're going to create a safe forum here for everybody. Now, at the same time, I also have to trigger my objectivity and not slap some bullshit or bias into the room by saying, oh, well, you know, I made my decision based on all of it. If I made a decision based on a compromise situation, I should be the first one to say, I was driving drunk and I made a bad decision. I, next, next time, I'll make sure that if I had more than two drinks, I'm not getting in the car, right? So it has it behooves on both sides to create this environment where we can do adequate reflection. But as a business, there is no incentive for doing reflection. I think Peter Thiel made a famous remark about failure, saying that we tend to always not look at what the right variables are. We cannot look at, we're not designed to do that. So we should not do it at all. No, I don't believe in that philosophy because that's like never taking any accountability or responsibility to action. But I don't believe in like the other extreme as well. There has to be some middle ground. And I don't think that's a good framework out there yet. I'd love to partner with you and see if we can build one and start from the academia and bring it into the industry. Maybe. If past performance is being used, those folks that were successful, I mean, they're getting older. And I think in the book, you talk about how young people are often in a better position to evaluate a lot of the 
the businesses. I mean, obviously there's a trade-off because they haven't made as many mistakes, but this should make young people attractive as recruits and, and hires. Now, I remember when I was in, in business school, nobody talked about becoming a venture capitalist. And I remember when I came out here to visit my cousin in 1990 or something, and he was working at Apple, he said, oh, you want an exciting career? You should become a venture capitalist. And I was like, what the heck is that? This was not on most people's radar, but now it's not uncommon for students to say, yeah, I want to be a venture capitalist. So the career trajectories have changed. People don't oftentimes can go directly into it instead of becoming an operator or whatever. So how do these companies evaluate, these GPs evaluate applicants or, or recruits? What kind of characteristics are they looking for in a partner? And what kind of characteristics, and you in the book you spend a lot of time talking, you, you enumerate a fairly long, lengthy list of, of characteristics that you think are essential to being a successful venture capitalist. Steve Jobs had that famous comment, uh, I think somebody asked him about being a venture capitalist. And he said that it sounds like a bullshit job to be. <laughs> that is on record in Michael Boris's <laughs> book. So the, the irony of it is Steve Jobs quoted it, one of the most successful VCs book, saying that venture capital is a bullshit job. So I think that there's no better way of thinking about this as a career path because Market recent, you know, do you know, he made an interesting comment that there are no barriers to entry. And he said it in a different way. He said, you need a license to drive a car or to buy a gun, but you don't need a license to become a venture capitalist. Barriers mm -hmm. to entry are really like none. Anybody can decide to push themselves into this uh, profession or this business. Well, but, no, but I mean, getting getting a job is pretty tough. You can't just walk into Andreessen and Goldman and McKinsey and those folks. I mean, they're out there recruiting pretty aggressively in the business schools and even at the undergraduate level. The VCs don't do that. I mean, they're not coming to campus and having interviews, the career management group and that kind of stuff. And I feel like as time evolves, some of those practices will start. Funds like Inside, I shouldn't say Tiger Global anymore because the way the markets have turned, but still they're a large firm. You have firms like Iconic or Kotu. You know, these are large firms. They have teams that are big. Even Anderson has 100 plus people, right? So recruiting is... It's an art form as much as a science. And it is not, the demand supply is so skewed that they don't have to do anything. People come to the door or they beat a path into the door. Now, Andreessen has been one of the firms that has been very thoughtful in the way they have gone out to find the right partners or pull people out of certain professionals into venture capital. But if I was at Berkeley finishing up my MBA and I wanted to become a venture capitalist, I think the path becomes quite winding and murky at times. And you have to go through a dark jungle and leap over three alligators before you can even get somebody to speak with you. And so the attributes obviously are if somebody has the entrepreneurial DNA, I would say, I, I wouldn't really use the term experience anymore because experience used to be a factor that came into play. But then we realized that there are negatives to that experience. You know, these entrepreneurs who become VCs are not able to let go of certain situations. They feel like jumping in the shoes themselves to solve problems, right? So it's a coach player mentality. But I'd say the Fundamental attributes that play out well is this curiosity and openness to learning about new trends. And then the second and the more important is the ability to take risk within a shorter period of time, make your decisions quickly as opposed to trying to belabor over how the future might play out five years down the road. Nobody knows. The short answer is nobody knows. So you have to build a framework to say, by the end of four questions, I should be able to make a decision. It's a yes or a no, but I, I'm not going to spin this into perpetuity and 
have six calls and 12 weeks, you know. So curiosity, learning, and the, the ability to make a decision in the unbow. Well, I think as someone who's in the business of teaching people to be ready for business, we're very interested in what ways of thinking, deep characteristics should be cultivated. And you enumerated quite a few. And the first one, I think, which I really enjoyed was thinking from first principles. You talked also a lot about what might be considered antagonistic, but you say, you know, you need to be optimistic and realistic. You have to be both with reason and also good with emotions. You have to have, you know, mental models and, and you have to do probabilistic thinking. You, you recommend an exposure to game theory. You, you also say, Hey, at the end of the day, you got to be political and you got to understand where the, where the power, I mean, this seemed like a laundry list of things that we in business school wish we could teach all of them, but it's pretty tough to, to get all those things. Is that portfolio of skills? in any way different from the portfolio of skills that you would need to be, say, a successful banker at JP Morgan or a successful manager at a legacy company? Because those skills, I'm like, who wouldn't want to have all those things, right? What is it that sets the VCs apart other than a strong appetite for risk? Is there a cognitive difference, a way of sizing up situation? You mentioned situational awareness. Usually you hear that in sports. What kind of skill, if you really want to start narrowing the focus to become a venture capitalist as a young person or someone in business school, where should you be doubling down? Not an easy answer there, right? But uh, <laughs> the e easier part that I can start with is that if you're earlier in your career, you have the biggest advantage, which is time is on your side. Now, part of the reason why I've included that laundry list in the book is about game theory and situational awareness and political dynamics and blah, 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 is because people enter into this career at multiple stages or different points in their lives. You have the young MBA or 20-some-year-old that is getting in, but you also have a 50-year-old getting in, right? So when you look at those extremes and you look at how they get in and what they do, some of those skills come into play. Now, if I were to say I'm talking to a 25-year-old person who is excited about getting into it, then the single most important thing is like study a technology landscape. Take anyone. It could be Web 3.0 or manufacturing in space. Pick one. Okay. And then start to form some opinions around what is a viable future that you see in the next two, three years. Okay. Not next 10 years, not next 10,000 years, but somewhat in the near future, you anticipate that, okay, autonomous cars will become widely adopted in retirement communities. Okay. Probabilistically, I think. That has a very good chance of happening. Okay. The cars will be adopted in a country like India. Hell no. It cannot happen in the next two to five years. Mm -hmm. so start to build a framework of a sector and where that sector could go in the future. And then approach a VC by saying, I think you need to pay attention to this. I love it when somebody comes to me younger, ideally, and says, I've seen the future, baby. Here it is. Come to me and let's do this together. And then that changes the way you start to like engage with each other. So I'd say that is a formula that can work quite effectively. I interviewed uh, John Hagel a while back and he talked about this kind of great shift and how you know we're living in a world of much greater uncertainty yeah. and how this puts demands, psychic demands on us. We have to be more comfortable with change and you know, not everybody's necessarily well suited for this. And in your book, The Resilient Founder, you talked a lot about the kind of mental strains, the pressures that are put upon people who are starting businesses, which have high failure rates. Venture capitalists also have high failure rates. Do you think that the characteristics that 
make for resilient founders are the same characteristics that make for resilient investors? Or do investors necessarily have a less stressful job because they, you know, they have a portfolio of companies. <laughs> Whereas if you're a founder, it's like, no, you're all in. You got everything, all your chips on one one number. This resilience and this this ability to deal with failure. Is there a difference between the founders and the and the investors there? Or are there kind of similar pressures on your mental health? No, I I would be lying, Greg, if I said that there are similar pressures. You're absolutely right that the portfolio theory is actually plays to my advantage. Like I am mm. not going to jump off when one of my company dies. The trigger for writing the resilient founder was when one of the founders I'd invested in committed suicide. And so the, it was a it was like a pause to say, oh, I thought I I understood what was going on in the company. I thought I knew what was going on. And every VC will say this with a lot of pride. You know, our job is to help the founders when they need us the most. This founder, Greg, had like the 15 of the leading names in the Valley, okay? 15 of the leading investors in the Valley were invested in this company and still he jumped off the cliff. How can he never call any one of us, okay? And here we boast that we want to build these ties with our founders, blah, blah, blah. The reality is very different. You you said it, the founders are 100% invested. One of the quotes of VC shared with me was like, the commitment of a hen versus the commitment of a pig is very different because yeah. one puts his life out and one is like, yeah, if this doesn't play out, then there will be one more. So it's not the same, 100% not the same. Right. But having said that, the reason I went down the path of writing The Resilient Founder, there are two VCs in particular who have suffered these pressures or emotional ups and downs. And I took inspiration and guidance from both of them. One of them is Brad Felt. He has been very open about writing and talking about his mental health, the depressions that he's been through and how he has endured with it. The other who doesn't get as much limelight is Jerry Colonna. Now, Jerry, if you go back in time and look at his history, he partnered with one of the most successful VCs in New York, Fred Wilson of Union Square Ventures. Fred is like the pioneering investor, the first investor in Coinbase. And you look at the list of the companies that Fred has invested in, it's like Fred is in the guard status in Mexico. Okay. And so Jerry chose a different path. He went through the emotional turmoil that I think post 9-11, he struggled a lot. He was very successful as a VC, but chose to step away from it. And today he actually runs a very successful practice in helping founders, helping CEOs to go the coaching route, to look at their own you know, sense of responsibility, sense of accountability, and help them to navigate these situations. So I feel like VCs don't do enough. They're not designed to do enough. It's not a part of their structure or mental framework or incentives. There are some that have stepped up and said, oh, we'll put 1% of our profits into this pool, blah, blah, blah. And I just don't think that is enough because VCs are partly to blame. We're the ones that are driving these founders to say, faster, 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 with less, less, less. Anybody who is being put to those kind of terms is like, what do you think? I'm like a machine? You're, you're going to kill me this way. <laughs> I mean, you use this term coaching. In the leadership literature, people are always talking about coaches rather than bosses. So in an organization, the boss is supposed to enable the success of, of the team, right. right? So we talk about teams and coaches and so forth. But in your book on startup boards, you don't really talk about the board as 
therapist, right? Board member is therapist. So like in this in resilient founder, you say, Hey, look, you need to get therapy, talk to people, et cetera, et cetera. But is your board member the person that you would logically think of as someone that you would go to if you were having these kinds of, of struggles? I mean, I have, a, I have a good friend who is a founder and CEO and you know, he, his mental health suffered and he talked to the board. The board was just like, okay, maybe it's time for you to move on, right? <laughs> you know, it wasn't like, hey, let's, let's try to dig into what's happening here and maybe help you to become a different type of leader. You yeah. know, he had to kind of figure that out on his own. Do board startup board members... Is it their job to be more like coaches or or should they just kind of stick with the numbers? But even if you stick with the numbers and you're interested in, you know, maximizing the success of this company, then you know, you still you need to concern yourself with the mental health of the founder, right? Yeah. Ryan, this is another fascinating topic, Greg, that uh, when I think about the role of the VC and how it's evolving, you know, we live to your point, we live in very strange times. None of us have experienced all of these confluence of these events happening at the same time, whether it's look at the pandemic and a war and political situations, look at the financial markets. And so it has just escalated our anxiety and stress levels. And of course, while all of that is happening, Greg, you as my portfolio CEO are expected to deliver spectacular results or else, mm -hmm. right? How many of have gone back to the CEOs to say, hey, there's a war and a pandemic going on. I want you to reduce your uh, top line. Like, I mean, you, you, can, you have to reduce your bone for sure, but keep the top line going, right? Because now incentives get disjointed. So I think that you touch on a very interesting topic where if Brad Feld was my board member and if I was the CEO, that conversation would be very easy. If Jerry Colonna was my, well, my board member and I was the CEO, that conversation would be easy. Blumberg, who's the co-author of Startup Boards, he, he and Brad had that relationship, you know, for 20 years actually. So it's a great way to look at how do I educate my board? It's largely dependent on VCs themselves. The founder is never going to, I'm afraid to say I missed a quarter by 10% of my revenues. Like, and I'm going to feel comfortable coming and telling you that, you know, I'm suffering uh, from some anxiety, stress, or depression. The boards are not equipped to listen well, especially these kinds of situations are going to be very uncomfortable. The boards are not equipped to say, how can we, to your point earlier, how can we help you become a leader? How can we help you in this situation? The board is like, hey, I sit on 11 boards. I need to get to my next board meeting. It's a very complex and unfortunate set of circumstances that we're in, in these kinds of dynamics. And I feel like this is a big time for VCs and board members to adopt this stance and say at least 20% of our time in board sessions, we need to, in a some sort of a compassionate way, bring this up. You know, one founder that I interviewed for this book gave me a fantastic idea. They themselves actually started to present in their board meetings. This last slide was somewhat of an emotional balance sheet. And I told mm -hmm. this young lady, like, what a great idea. You know, I feel like every mm -hmm. founder should do this where they themselves step into the room and say, here are the financial metrics and blah, 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 burn rate, growth. But let us tell you how we feel when we step into our workday every morning. And it is, it is not perfect. You cannot put a precise number on it, but it's a start. And if more, more people start to feel stressed out, then you have to make adjustments or do something about it. How you do it is still to be determined. Well, I think you, you introduced this concept of the psych What is it? I mean, you, you talk about the IQ and the IQ EQ. Is like, is... Yeah, I was doing a play there. The psychological quotient needs to be, you know, you need to be aware of what blocks you, what motivates you. And you know, there is a lot mm -hmm. of like happy language out there. 
But at a psychological mm-hmm. level, you have to do a lot of reflection to even figure out the basics. That was the notion of PsyQ, yeah. Do you think that some VCs could maybe differentiate themselves by offering this kind of leadership development service. We know that a lot of VCs now differentiate themselves by saying, hey, you know, we have this ecosystem where we will help you find customers, we'll help you find executive team, we'll help you find developers. I mean, could you differentiate yourself by saying, hey, we have this fantastic leadership coaching, we have this spiritual (laughs) mentorship, we have all this stuff. There's that TV show called uh, Billions, right? Where this uh, hedge fund has its in-house psychologist or performance coach, or I don't know exactly what her title is, but could that be a new new differentiator when you're trying to uh, attract portfolio companies? Yeah, it's a great point, Greg. Let me narrate a short, a small incident that I was an observer in. So I was sitting beside this beautiful rectangular table with 15 seats and this young lady who was, she was not on the investment team, but like you, she asked these questions and she said, this could be a great differentiation. And the whole room was silent. They all looked at her like, you are crazy. And we're not even going to discuss this for now. Mm-hmm. So I think there is a huge opportunity here, but yeah. it, it is also a double-edged sword because it's like a, a fox in a hen house kind of a dynamic. Okay. The trust that needs to be built in the VC community by the founders does not exist. In fact, you know, they're actively being seen as enemies in, in seven out of 10 conversations. You know, the VC is the enemy. Just get the money out of that guy. He's dumb money, blah, blah, blah. Right? We're not seen as equal partners. Okay. Now, whatever be the underlying dynamics that drive that, if there is enough trust to say, I know you have my back, then I can accept that mentor, coach, or guide that you're recommending. Mm-hmm. But if I don't have the trust, you know, you can actually figure out all my mental blocks and use that. Yes. Right. So I'm not even going to, I'm going to say, thank you, Greg. You're very kind, but we are fine. So how do VCs create this third arm, you know, like, or uh, independent body or something out there, right? In fact, one of the VCs tweeted, there is a potential to create like a multi-billion dollar company just around this notion of there's some technology, there's some human touch. There are certain trigger triggers or ways where it could just be a community play. I mean, I've used uh, examples from Alcoholics Anonymous because one of the founders told me that that was the safest place. I mean, how bad is this, Greg? That the yeah. safest place a founder could find was an anonymous group. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we talk about how the partnership between a founder and an investor is kind of like a marriage. And sometimes, yeah. you know, it's going to last longer than typical marriage. Exactly. And you're kind of in each other's business sort of nonstop. Why wouldn't you do the kind of diligence that you do with a spouse? Don't just think in terms of, well, okay, what are the terms on the term sheet? But like, what is this person going to give me? You know, how is yeah. this person going to improve you know, my well-being and so forth? Like, yeah. why wouldn't, shouldn't that be a bigger part of the due diligence that founders do when they're you yeah. know, letting VCs pitch to them? No, absolutely. Founders, uh, you know, sort of part of the chapters we've covered in startup boards is almost like creating a, a list of diligence criteria that founders need yeah. to adopt when they're taking the money. But the reality is that so, a lot of founders, I would say 70, 80% of the investments I've made, the founders have rarely asked much beyond, I say 10 years ago, they'd only asked about the terms. Okay. What are the valuation blah, like financial terms? That was it. Today, 10 years later, they at least ask some questions about, can you give me a few examples of how you help me get customers or, mm-hmm. or what are some things you can do to help me? And then I could prepare my sales pitch and give it to them. 
Some of them buy it, some of them don't. Okay. The emotional part, zilch. Nobody talks about it, nobody brings it up. Okay. And so I actually send them a copy of this book. The resident founders say, you might need to think about building your own community of peer CEOs or whoever you talk to, because in this journey, we are all going to get stretched and all going to get yanked in different directions. And the last thing you want is something that affects your health and well-being. Now, you talk a lot about integrity and, and values and culture. And you actually say that values are just words, but culture is when you actually live the words. And I don't know, to an outsider, I don't think people would say, oh yeah, venture capital. Those are, those are the people that are the really, they're the ones that have all the integrity, <laughs> not like those Wall Street people. They're, they're, I don't know whether people think that way, but you emphasize how important it is and how important it is to the continued success of these enterprises. So in the politics and the infighting notwithstanding, how important is it? You had another quote from one of your interviewees that said that culture is like cement. It solidifies very, very quickly, and then it's hard to, hard to change. And you even quoted Aristotle. What's funny in, in this podcast, it's like, you don't quote Aristotle. You don't get on the podcast, it seems like. So I found that, I found that interesting. So what is it about the, the values and, and the entire, can you, as an LP, have some kind of benchmark that you can use to evaluate the the culture of the fund in which you're investing. And if you're say an aspiring VC and you're applying for jobs, how can you evaluate the, the culture and the integrity of the organization that you're approaching? And this is a fascinating topic and one that is equal parts mystery and equal parts unknown, untouched. I think the values and the mission statement tends to be like back in the day, Greg, you remember like if you walked into a fortune 500 headquarters, There'd be a plaque hanging on the wall, customers first, or blah, blah, blah. There'll be something, some mm -hmm. like happy language that is posted on the wall. Then when you start to interact with people, you'd notice either it really lines up well and people have adopted that stance in their day-to-day -day behavior, or it was like, oh, nobody even knows what those pieces are, right? So I think in venture, the notion of values, value statements, they have just started to come up. And now some of the websites also post these. And there are some firms actually that I admire that have adopted, like you could call the partners and they actually live those values. It's, it's not like they put a list together and then start to change their behavior to adhere to that list. It's like nine out of 10 times, that's how they are. They've just codified this so that a new team member or a prospective entrepreneur knows like, hey, this is my operating system. And so one, one anecdote that I remember was, uh, uh, LP that was doing their diligence on a GP uh, goes to the office. They walk into the front desk. They are waiting there for 10, 15 minutes. So this LP starts to chat, start with the, the front desk, the lady at the front desk say, so tell me, do you enjoy working here? And the kind of things this lady shared with them in 10 minutes, that LP told me we should run away from that form in that 10 minutes, by the end of the 10 minutes. So the kind of things like, Oh, uh, these partners, if they don't kill each other, I'll kill them. You know, those kind of statements, you know, mm -hmm. or there are things like they say that when one VC hired this very prominent CEO on their team, he, he was telling another LP that, oh, you don't get it. That guy's my servant. They talk about values and they talk about behavior and you start to see the stark contrast that exists. But the other simple metric of identifying whether a firm is a well-functioning machine or not is just look at the partners and look how often they keep changing. If there is a lot of churn, now it could be due to a wide range of reasons, but the fundamental, one of the fundamental reasons is that something is not clicking there in this band. Like think about the Beatles, like if every mm -hmm. 
six months, they had a new member come up. And like, oh, this is not a band. It's just somebody running the show behind the scenes and he's swapping people out all the time, right? So that tells you sometimes. And I think at the heart of it, it becomes this battle for money or status. Because mm-hmm. the two examples that I can quote you are the partner that brings in the opportunity, the sourcing, if you will, rarely gets the financial or the the fame and the fortune, right? They rarely get those if the company starts to become successful because nine out of 10 times, a senior partner will insert themselves and say, you don't quite know, let me be the one who will shepherd this to the IPO. Okay. And so what happens? Everybody thinks that this so-and-so partner who's crossed the IPO line was the one who has done all the hard work when really they have just landed in front of the parade at the finish line. Okay. This happens all the time. I have so many young founders, young partners calling me all the time saying, they're literally crying in my beer saying like, this is happening. What can I do? I'm like, you're not going to be able to do anything. You can choose to save the firm or start your own firm, but this is not going to change. Right? So that's one. The second is financial incentives. Like if somebody finds, uh, and if that is not codified in the agreement between the partners of how they'll split, they rarely get the sponsors. So it's almost like a, a power hierarchy internal to the firm, which sort of plays out in a very different way. And the values that are projected outside on the website or with founders, mm-hmm. I've seen part with investors with two separate, completely separate behavioral patterns. Inside the firm, they are raging with anger and throwing yeah. things around and yelling and screaming. But the moment they're in the boardroom, oh my God, Greg, you would think that this person is a gift to mankind. <laughs> Yeah, no, I've seen that elsewhere. Well, you say that friends come and go, but enemies accumulate over time. But getting back to this integrity point, I mean, this is a business of relationships and you can't draft contracts that are fully contingent. There's a lot of wiggle room and reputations are are super important and reputations are hard to build and easy to lose. And, And so how much energy is put into that reputation management and how much are firms really trying to communicate to potential portfolio companies and potential partners that they are the kind of enterprises that that are not going to renege on their word, that are not going to do anything underhanded, not surprise people with poison pill clauses and so forth in in the term sheets and so forth. There are two parts to this relationship slash contract, if you will. There's the part that's the exchange of money and nine out of 10 times or 9.9 out of 10 times the transfer of money occurs because that's the starting of the relationship. Um, now there are in this market and see term she's getting pulled back. So even that is support doubtful these days, but that part of the transaction is, Hey, I'm going to give you so many dollars. I'll get so many shares. Okay. Everything else. Now, some founders have been coached to say everything else is a bonus. Okay. Everything else that you get beyond that capital is this uh, notion of, I'm going to help you. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. Treated as bonus. Okay, that's that's how far below our industry has fallen, right? Because I can't believe what you say. I can't believe whether you deliver on all of these things that promises that you make when we are in the romance phase versus the post marriage, right? And so, what I think that has happened in our industry: the founders they talk to each other, they listen to what the VC is pitching to them, but then they mm-hmm. get the reality from other founders in the portfolio and say yes. I'm going to discount 50% of whatever this VC claims, but there is other 50% that is still valuable for me. I can, I can work with that. And so I think that dynamic is played out at the founder level. 
this still creates a problem for the GP lab, for the LP, the institutional investor, because guess what? When a pension fund walks into my office, I've got my best clothes on, I've cleaned up all my slides, and I am now putting my best foot forward. And so the encouragement to these LPs these days is that they talk to the founders because they'll tell you the truth and talk to other peer investors as well because they'll know who sourced the opportunity. They know, they'll know who did the hard work versus, you know, big serves of marketing slides. I think that's part and parcel of the whole pay it forward mentality that we talk about when we talk about the bright side of Silicon Valley and the the good aspects of Silicon Valley, that's such a huge, important part of it where you'll give this feedback, you'll give this advice. It takes time. It takes effort. You don't have any immediate reward from it. Perhaps the, the only reward you might get is enhanced reputation. And maybe because Silicon Valley is such a small place, it's almost like a high school with everybody gossiping about everybody else. And so, oh yeah, that Mahendra's a great guy. He's, he's always super helpful. And, and I think probably writing this book is just part of that whole pay it forward concept where you're throwing this gift out into the world. There'll be gifts flowing back from, from other directions. I've talked to a lot of people who talk about early human societies and, and early human societies seem to be run along a similar principle. So it's, it's almost like Silicon Valley is, is a little place to seen tribe of gift givers. Of course, there's plenty of backstabbing and, and conspiring going on, just like in those place to seen societies. But one of, one of the things that I, I, I want to ask you about, there's towards somewhere in the middle of the book, you made this assessment of founders and you talked about lambs versus cheetahs. And I found this one super interesting because it was you argued that the cheetahs are the ones that really are successful at a higher rate as, as founders. But all throughout the book, when you talk about the characteristics and traits that make for successful VCs, I kind of got the sense that VCs are more like the lambs and that they're more judicious, they're more balanced, they're more reflective, whereas the, the founders are the ones that are just like 100% pedal to the metal. Everything's at 11 and you have 125% confidence in everything you're doing. And yet we then see a lot of founders who become, become VCs. So maybe just talk a bit about this lamb versus cheetah idea. And is there, is there a fundamental difference between a founder and, and a VC? And, and if you transition from one to the other, do you have to make adjustments uh, along the way? You know, the lambs versus cheetahs study was done by this fascinating guy based out of Chicago. He used it on a recruiting firm, if I remember correctly. And he also published a book on this topic. His hypothesis was that the kind of CEO who's a cheetah, you know, Kind of the analog is somebody who's driven and doesn't sit still, is uh, aggressive in their own way and gets the output, is well-regarded and well-received, especially in the world of venture. And the VCs, of course, are more like labs. I, I wouldn't debate that point at all because it's a very cushy business. The CEO in a startup, going back to the earlier part of our conversation of the commitment that they have all in, is cheetah because... The companies will fall yeah. apart. Whereas me, oh, I'll get my management fee no matter what happens because that was baked on the agreement when you signed that, right? And there's no recourse you have to my management fee. Okay, so that's one part of the hypothesis that puts us in a state of comfort. The second part of the hypothesis is that portfolio theory, right? Like I've got 10 companies, so why should I hunt? But this thing is changing now with some of the firms and especially if you look at firms like and resource Sequoia, I mean, they function like cheetahs. You know, they are competitive. They will, I mean, one of the anecdotes that I've heard is that one of these firms hunted down a founder who was on a Friday night at a nightclub enjoying time with friends 
And this VC stood outside till that CEO came out and they signed the term sheet there. Okay. There's <laughs> yeah. no better example that I can code off of a cheetah of a VC that can do that. No, I cannot do that. You know, I just don't have it in my personality, nor do I have the kind of money or the brand, et cetera, et cetera. So it's far away who you are as a person. I mean, if you read about Ben Horowitz and the books that he's written or Mark and Lisa, I mean, these are fighters. They're competitive. They're going to stand up in any ring and nobody gives them a black eye. They will give you 10 black eyes, but they, nobody gives them a black eye. So it's their persona. It's how they operate. And for some, it is actually a very attractive place. For some, oh no, that's not for me. And I'm better off behaving in a different way. Take Peter Thiel, for example. He actually abhors the idea of competition. All the writing that he's done, he hates competition. In fact, in his perfect world, founders should be going into places where there's no competition. Hence, you have an Elon Musk who's doing something that is no competition. And he's trying to sort of build that into the founder that find these areas where there is zero competition or very little competition. So you have this different. Now, both of them are equally successful in their own merit. And so I'd say you can choose any path, but the successful outcome is something that you have to drive towards. Well, Mahendra, you've got a series of books here, Resilient Founder which we barely scratched the surface of. Startup boards, great how-to for folks who are hiring their board as founders. And also the business of, of venture capital, which is still, I think, perhaps the most comprehensive book on the topic. Thanks for joining me. Hope to see you again in person on campus sometime soon. Thank you, Greg. It's always a delight. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review. To listen to other episodes, please visit our website at www.unsiloedpodcast.com.